Hayes and Bethany are getting a well-deserved rest this week. I'm really thankful to Stephen and Amanda Batasic for leading us this morning. Jenny Richardson singing. It's always great to be led by them. Can we give them another round of applause for leading us in worship this morning? Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Hey, grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to James chapter 4. James 4 is where we're going to be today. Thank you, William. Appreciate it. As we are jumping into a new sermon series entitled Draw Near. Last week, we began looking at this concept, a, a command and a promise from the Lord where he commands us, hey, draw near to God, and then the promise, and he will draw near to you. And so we'll be looking at prayer over the course of this season and, and really inviting all of us, hey, are we willing to step closer to the Lord, to purposely and intentionally draw near to him through prayer? And so in your personal prayer times, and your prayer with community groups, and your prayers with others, that's going to be our challenge, is like really leaning into that. And we'll be giving you new uh, tools and, and tips and resources, but as we begin, we really are just looking at our, our posture as we come into this. And so James 4, verse 7, is where we'll begin in just a second. James chapter 4, verse 7, is where we'll begin. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. I wonder how many of us have allergies in the room. You ever get an allergy? Yeah, an allergy of some kind? You might? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of us. It's, it's random to see that many hands go up. When I was growing up, I just didn't know a lot of people with allergies. It just seemed to be more the exception to the rule, and today it just seems to be the rule. Uh, and I don't know if that's just because we're more aware of it or science has advanced more, but it just seems to be that we're seeing a whole lot more allergies uh, in life. And this is in our home as well. A couple years ago, uh, we discovered that Allison has allergies both to gluten and to dairy, which is a bit of a shock to us. I didn't even know what gluten was. Right? I had to look it up and find out, okay, that's wheat and all of those things. And so we were actually trying to, to deal with a different illness and we're trying different things to help. And we just kind of stumbled across this. And when we pulled those two things out of her diet, some amazing things began to happen. Uh, stomach issues that she had had literally her entire life just kind of evaporated. Stuff that we had gotten used to and just said, I guess this is just kind of the way it is. It's just kind of the way you're wired. All of a sudden got tons better. Other things really improved in her life. It was, it was dramatic. It was almost miraculous. Just taking a couple of foods out had this much of an impact on her life. And so now we're living in a new world. On the one hand, it's great. It's awesome because there's this new health and energy and vitality that we, she really didn't have before for the first really 30 years of her life. The flip side, though, is, uh, is that we have to live with constant vigilance. Uh, every time we go out to eat, we got to check and say, hey, what's, what's in that? Okay, I need to know. What's, is there going to be any gluten, any dairy? You got to make sure people know what those things are. I read a lot of uh, ingredient lists to make sure, hey, what's in this? Because it will sneak in in some very sneaky ways if you're not careful. When folks give us food, we have to be very careful because even when people are, are trying to be careful, sometimes things sneak in. And if, if those things get in, it, it has a, a negative effect. I mean, a massive effect. And we will feel it for days, if not weeks. And so... It's kind of that tightrope act. We're so glad that we actually know what this is because it's brought greater life, but we have to be aware of the dangers that some other people don't really have to worry about. And many of you know exactly what that's like because you have an allergy of your own. Maybe you've got a peanut allergy or you've got a child with a peanut allergy or a relative with a peanut allergy. Maybe it's an environmental allergy. It's a, it's a cat's, a dog's, or something else in the environment. Maybe it's a medication allergy where you go in and things that other people can take, you cannot take at all. And you have to be constantly vigilant to make sure 
Like you don't take these things or you're not exposed to these things because they have a huge impact on you. But if you can be aware of those things, man, that can, that can transform your life for the better in a lot of different ways. And look, I'm on this journey with Allison, but I don't actually share her allergies. You might say, well, Adam, you got the better end of the deal. You can still eat gluten and dairy. And I do, and I can, and that's wonderful. But, but the question I've been trying to ask myself is, is like, yeah, but what about the allergies I still don't know that I have? She didn't know she had this for three decades of her life. Are there things in my life that I don't know that are just kind of holding me back or hurting me in ways that I just kind of got used to and said, I guess this is all there is. What if there are allergies I don't even know about? What if there's allergies you don't even know about? You might say, oh, I don't I think I physically I would be aware of that. Yeah, but what about spiritually? Is it possible to have a spiritual allergy that's holding you back and you don't even know it? That's kind of what James is getting at in James chapter four. We're gonna read again the passage that we were in last week. Because listen to what he says here when, he is, uh, when, he's talking about, uh, when he's talking about this situation we find ourselves in. James chapter 4 verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's stop right there. All right, so here is James giving a prescriptive to believers. Remember, he's not talking to lost people here. He's talking to Christians. They would have heard this letter read in a worship service. He is expecting this to be read by believers. And so for people who say, yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Yes, I am saved. I have surrendered my life to him. He says, listen, there's still a danger for us, even as believers. We have a danger that we can be double-minded. We need to purify our hearts, that we are still sinful. We need to cleanse our hands. And that's true not just for the listeners of this first letter, but it's true for us. That even as believers in Jesus Christ, this doesn't mean that because I've given my life to the Lord, everything is now fine. There's got to be this constant vigilance in my life because we're still growing. We are still struggling with sin in our lives. We have been set free from death. It no longer has mastery over us. And yet we are still in the process of sanctification. And we must constantly be alive to that because if we're not, well, we will drift. Look what a different writer is going to say in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Another writer that will encourage us to draw near to God, he says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is the bent of every human soul, even believers. This is the bent of all of us. We will drift away from the Lord. I wonder how many of us in this room can say that's a part of our story. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it where people say, Adam, I came to faith as a, as a young child. I came to faith as a teenager, and then I went to college, and I drifted. Or Adam, hey, I walked with the Lord, and I was really walking with him, and everything went fine until this event happened in my life, and there was that, that period of time, that decade that I drifted. And if we're not alive, if we're not careful, if we're not aware of these things, if we're, that this is in us, we will naturally drift. And, and, and James points out two different things here. First off, he's going to say, he's going to say, uh, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So it's interesting. Uh, it's most likely that James coins this term, uh, but literally in the Greek, it says double-souled. 
He says, you, you, you are double-souled. What does that mean? Well, you can't actually be double-souled. You can't have two souls stuck inside of you, which is where we get the translation double-minded. It means that we would live and act as if we were one type of person in one situation, and we would live and act as a different type of person in a different situation. So you have people here who on the one side would say, I absolutely love the Lord and I follow after him and in many areas of my life, I'm gonna pursue him and I am genuine in that and yet there are these other areas of my life where I kind of reject that and I just kind of do what I want and I live as a different kind of person. We are double-minded. We, we actually kind of mean both, but it, it's splitting us from the inside out. We're double-minded. We need to purify our hearts. Secondly, it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Even as believers, we are still wrestling with our sin nature. It's been defanged. It's been dethroned. It no longer has power. But all of us as believers will continue to struggle with sin. It's in our very flesh, and we have to resist this. And so the antidote for all of these things is prayer. Verse 8, he starts with, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How do I stay alive to these spiritual allergies, for lack of a better term? How do I stay alive to this propensity in my heart to leave? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Well, through prayer. Constant, Christ-focused, spirit-filled, persistent prayer. And when I draw near to God daily, consistently, and he draws near to me, I stay alive to these dangers, and he actually does the opposite. He makes me more like him. But this is why prayer is not just a useful tool. It's not just a, a, a wonderful benefit when we find ourselves in a pinch. It's necessary. We need prayer, interaction with the Father every single day. So this morning, I want to look at what Jesus actually teaches us about prayer. What does that actually look like in my life? So flip now, if you will, back over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, where we'll look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. Probably one of the most famous prayers on, all, on the planet. I'll put it up on the screen too, but you can look there in your text. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, Jesus actually teaches us very specifically on how to draw near to him. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and look what it says. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And you can actually say it with me if you want. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll stop right there. I know you may have learned an extra couple lines there, and they say, well, what about the last one? That's actually probably not original in the text. But this is what Jesus teaches us about prayer. 
Now, he has a lot to say, and he says, look, as, as we're getting into prayer, he doesn't just tell us how to pray. He says there's some problems with prayer. First off, in verse 5, he says something that the Pharisees were doing, they were just making it all about themselves. We learned last week in James, it's possible to pray wrongly. And he's going to bring that very accusation against both the Pharisees and the Gentiles. And he's going to say to the Pharisees, he goes, listen, you guys just keep making it about yourselves. When you pray, you like to pray in front of people. You get out there on the street corners, you get in the synagogues, and they're praying these long, flowy prayers, and they've got all their theological terms, and they, they make sure it's very flowery and sounds professional, and, and man, it looks amazing, and it sounds amazing, and Jesus isn't listening at all, because they're not actually talking to him. Now, the Pharisees would protest. They would say, well, Adam, of course I am talking to the Lord. We are praying. We know how to pray. We've read the scriptures. We know how to do that. But yes, of course, we're doing that in public. We have to lead the people. We have to show them how it's done. We have to show them that, that we can lead them spiritually. Can't I do both at the same time? Can't I kill two birds with one stone? And in this instance, the answer is No. Look, just because we, we have two uh, purposes doesn't mean that we can do both of them effectively. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, he goes, listen, you, you've already got what you wanted, but it didn't really seem like you were chasing after me. Trying to do two things at once doesn't actually work out for most people. I mean, think about it, guys. If you are going to take your wife out on a date night and you take your sports-averse wife out to a sports bar so you can make sure to accomplish date night and watch the game at the same time. She hates sports. There's only 42 televisions in that restaurant. It'll be fine. You're going to sit down, have a wonderful date night. You won't miss a play. And you're thinking, this is the best of both worlds. I'm killing two birds with one stone. You tell me how that works out for you, all right? I said, but listen, I mean both, right? I want to do both. Listen, but when you're trying to do two purposes at the same time, it's not actually working. The problem for the Pharisees is they're now actually just using prayer. God simply becomes a means to an end. And he says, that's... That's not the kind of prayer that I'm looking for. Secondly, though, in verse 7, he's going to turn to the Gentiles and says, the Gentiles make it impersonal. The Gentiles just assume that if they just pray enough, if they say the right things, if they say the words in the right order, if they say the prayer enough times, if they do it with the right passion, that this will somehow and in some way move the spiritual level, levers of power to where they get what they want. But in doing so, they are making an assumption that God is not a person to be interacted with. He is not a father to be known. Instead, he is a machine to be manipulated. Honestly, he's just a tree to be felled. Their prayers end up just becoming them just kind of taking a bunch of wax at it. If I can just, just take a few more swings, if I, if I whack at this tree enough, sooner or later, that tree will fall. He's a wall to be worn down or dug out of that if I just keep asking, if I just keep digging, if I just keep saying this sooner or later, I'll get through and I get what I want. And that's impersonal. It's assuming that God's just a machine. He's just a system. He's not a person. And God says prayer like that just doesn't work at all. And so instead, Jesus is going to give them the Lord's prayer now, the Lord's Prayer is probably the most famous prayer on the planet. It's probably known by more people than any other prayer. And not everybody who even says the prayer 
believes in it. I don't know if every single football player who's ever taken a knee in a huddle and said the Lord's Prayer actually meant what it was saying, but they said it. Probably a lot of them did, but maybe not all of them. And maybe even we, when we're saying it, we started coming out loud and you were looking at something else. Our Father, I never know to be thy name. It just kind of comes out. And we can say it. We've heard it somewhere. It's gotten into us, but, but I don't know if we're really praying or not. But this prayer is amazing. Jesus is giving us something profound. And look, we could spend an entire series just on, the, on this one prayer. But I just want to look at a couple things about this that are going to help us as the Lord's prayer can guide us in our prayer life. But we need to notice a couple things. The first off is this. This is not a form prayer. This is not a form prayer. When Jesus teaches us about prayer and he gives us the Lord's prayer, his intent is not for us just to pray this prayer. As if we just said this prayer over and over, if we say this prayer first, if we just use this prayer, this is the good one. This is the way to do it. We just need to say these words that clearly can't be what Jesus means. You say, well, why? Well, we do know that this is not the first time Jesus has taught about this. Look at this in Luke chapter 11. This is a different gospel at a different point in the disciples' journey. Luke 11, it says this. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say this. And then he launches into the Lord's prayer. Jesus taught the same thing in multiple locations and multiple times. And so the first time that the disciples hear the Lord's Prayer is almost certainly not the Sermon on the Mount. It was in one of these private moments. But think about that for just a second. If all Jesus is doing is just saying the Lord's Prayer over and over and over and over again, there's no need for him to teach you. You just listen, pick up the words, and then start saying the same thing. There's no need to be taught anything. Furthermore, we don't see Jesus praying like this anywhere else. He prays multiple times in multiple ways all throughout the Gospels. Look at a place like John chapter 17, something that we would call the high priestly prayer. It's the night before the crucifixion, and Jesus has this entire chapter where he prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, he prays for us. But it's a whole chapter's worth of a prayer, and it doesn't look like this at all. So, so why then is Jesus saying, hey, this is how then you should pray? What does he mean when he says, you should pray like this? It's, it's not a form, it's a base to be built on. It's not a form prayer that we need to say over and over. It's a base to be built on. It's the ground from which we can pray all kinds of prayers. So check this out. I'm going to blow your minds. I've been working on this. Um, see what you think, okay? Get this. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Hold your applause. Wait, no applause? Seriously? You're not blown away? You're not amazed? Now I know my ABCs. Next time, won't you sing with me? How, how is this not incredible to you? You're like, Adam, you're a grown man. You know your ABCs. Who cares? Everybody knows their ABCs. You should know your ABCs right now. But look, I mean, look, I'm amazed when my daughter does it. She's three. She learns her ABCs, and I am overjoyed. It is amazing. I am legitimately excited when she says her ABCs. But in five years, I will be less impressed. Why? 
Well, look, she doesn't know anything, right? She's learning English from scratch, and she needs the ABCs. It is the base upon which we build everything else in the English language. All words, all poetry, all everything, it all comes out of the alphabet. Okay, well, you got to have that as a base. you got to know your ABCs, but the goal is not simply to learn the base. The goal is to learn the base so that from there, you can make everything. Well, that's what this prayer is. This prayer is helpful as we begin. It's a good to kind of get us started, but the goal is not to stay here. The goal is that for this to be a base that guides us into all kinds of prayers. It's not just a form prayer. It's a base upon which we can build all kinds of things. And so we need to understand that about this, but also we need to recognize that this is a revolutionary prayer. This is an unbelievable prayer. This is not how other people prayed. For Jesus to pray like this, there was instantly a difference between the way he prayed and the way the Pharisees prayed, the way he prayed and the way the Gentiles prayed. What Jesus is doing here is revolutionary. And even that sounds weird to our ears, does it not? When we hear the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't seem new and revolutionary. It seems old and almost ancient. This is a prayer that we've been using for 2,000 years. In fact, even the the feel of the Lord's Prayer, because we say it out loud in monotone, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It has this very almost ancient feel to it, but that's not how it would have heard, would have been heard by the first hearers. This was revolutionary. This was a different kind of prayer. There's three things that this is doing. Let me show you those as a three things about the Lord's Prayer that are necessary for us. The first one is this. The Lord's Prayer draws us close. The Lord's Prayer draws us close to him. Remember, we are to draw near to God. He's also going to draw near to us. The Lord's Prayer draws us close. Look at the first two words. It says, our Father. Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Again, we're so familiar with this prayer. That just kind of rolls off our tongue. We don't even notice it anymore. This would have been shocking to the first hearers. This is not how people in the Old Testament address the Lord. You will find three, maybe four instances in the entire Old Testament where people refer to God as their father. This was not done. Look at Moses. Moses, he was so close to God that he talks with God face to face as one talks with a friend. I can't find one instance where Moses talks to the Lord and refers to him as his father. What about David, the man after God's own heart? David, who pours his heart out in prayer in hundreds of prayers that are recorded even in the scriptures. I can't find one place where he referred to the Lord as his father. He's called God, he's called Sovereign, he's called Yahweh, he's called all kinds of things, shepherd, but, but not Father. And listen to what Jesus is saying. He's not simply saying, hey, here's how I can pray. He says, no, here's how you can pray. You can call God your Father. That is revolutionary. Right at the outset, it is defining the terms of the relationship. That God is someone who's not just in authority over you, though he is. He's a God who relates to us primarily, not through that power, but through his love. Because he treats us not simply as slaves or worshipers or workers, but as children. He sees you as son. He sees you as daughter. He says, when you come to me, this is what I'm expecting of you. I'm expecting you to come as my child. 
I am drawing near to you, not as your employer, not even as your master. I am drawing near to you as your father. Do you see how he's drawing us close? How he's inviting us in closer to him? This is unbelievable. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, in fact, I thought about asking this of everybody, uh, was this, do you see God as your father? But I'm not gonna ask that question because I already know the answer, and the answer is yes, for good or for ill. See, here's something that we all need to come to grips with. When we use the word father when it comes to prayer, we cannot help but make associations, comparisons, if you will, between our heavenly father and our earthly father. When we try to use this term and say our father who art in heaven, we begin to address the Lord as father. We naturally begin to assume that some of the ways that our earthly father interacts with us is going to be the way that our heavenly father interacts with us for good or for ill. And for some of us, that's helpful. And for a lot of us, that's not. And until we understand that and until we acknowledge it and address it, that will just begin to happen. And we can say, our Father, but that actually might trip you up. That actually might move you in a different direction instead of actually engaging with the perfect Heavenly Father, which is what you have. Our fathers did their best. All of us as fathers are doing our best. No parent is perfect. They will invariably make mistakes, but our heavenly father does not. Our heavenly father loves us as we should be loved. He always reacts appropriately. He never reacts disproportionately. And his main attitude towards us is one of fatherly affection this is how God feels about you. And if you and I can work through that and begin to disassociate our, our earthly fathers from our heavenly father and realize that this is the invitation offered to us, then we can draw near to him in confidence. And so before we ever got to our request, I wonder if we just started in prayer with that. We just said, Father, you're our father. You're my father. You're a father to me. It's not a mantra. It's a meditation. To stop and begin to contemplate, what does that mean? Do I appreciate that? Do I understand that? Am I actually living in that? Don't just make assumptions. Don't just drift. You're my father. You're a father to me. What does that mean? What does that look like? Is that possible? You're a father to me. The perfect father. The right father. You're a father to me. What would happen if we actually... As we entered into prayer, before we rushed off into all the things we need, important though those are, and welcome as those requests are, we begin to simply say, God, you're my father. You're my father. And see how that would change our prayers. That's how we draw near to God, not in an impersonal way, not trying to, to maneuver the levers, but recognizing that he is a father who loves us. So the first thing the Lord's Prayer does is, is it draws us close. Here's the second thing the Lord's Prayer does. It recenters us. The Lord's Prayer recenters us. And this is something that we desperately need. Remember, there's a drift to our souls. Left to ourselves and left unattended, there is a drift to our souls. The Lord's Prayer, Lord's Prayer corrects this. Look at the next few phrases. It says, our Father in heaven. So it starts out with our Father. Okay, so not only is he a Father, but 
He's father. He's not just friend. And so there's an authority structure here. You're an authority over me. Okay. I'm not the ultimate authority of life. You're the authority of life. You're my father. You're the father who is in heaven. Okay. Wait a minute. There's, there, there's a world that I do not see. There's more to this existence than what I understand. There is a, there's a heaven that is beyond what I see with my eyes. Hallowed be your name. Okay, so not only are you father, but you are holy. That's what that word means. You are holy. You are hallowed. You are more. You are set apart. You are different than all of us. You are other. You are completely perfect. You're not tainted by sin at all. Please know this, that you and I will quite literally spend the rest of our eternity diving into the definition of that word of finding out even more of the depths of his perfection and his glory and his wisdom and his beauty and his majesty. He is holy, set apart, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come. Wait a minute, there's a kingdom here and you're the king. There's a greater kingdom than my kingdom. Your kingdom needs to come. Your will needs to be done. There's a greater will than my will. Your will needs to be done. Your will is more important than my will. Do you see what's happening in this prayer? It is shifting the center of power away from us and back towards the Lord. Because there is a gravitational pull to our selfishness. Again, left by ourselves, we will naturally begin to pull things into ourselves. By ourselves, our nature is to want the whole world to revolve around us. That is not just you or that person you're thinking about. That's all of us. We all naturally have this sinful gravitational pull and we want to make the world about us. And left to our devices, that's what we will do. The Lord's Prayer changes that and, and kind of shifts the gravity back to where it rightfully belongs. But if you and I aren't aware, if we're not vigilant about this, that will naturally occur. I thought about this recently when I was reading an article. Um, it was interesting to me. There's a guy over in Italy uh, named Nicholas Gentile. And this guy is a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Anybody? Yes? There you go, yeah. Uh, Lord of the Rings, if you're not knowing, a set of fantasy novels written by J.R.R. Tolkien uh, back in the 20th century. They also made movies, if you did not know that they were books before that. Uh, but listen, this is a huge deal, and it, it's, it's a massive fantasy epic world that, that Tolkien built. And this guy uh, loves it so much and identifies with that world so much. And the, and the main characters, who were called hobbits, in that story that he says, I want to be a hobbit. And so here he is. This is Nicholas Gentile um, at his place in Italy, and he lives and dresses as a hobbit. Now, he does not just dress this way. He has bought a piece of land in Italy, and he is recreating the Shire, which is kind of the place where all the hobbits lived in these books. Remember, these are fictional beings. But he loves this so much that he dresses like this and says, oh, no, wait a minute, this is what I want to do. He even has friends who are coming to live with him, right? And so they all get together and they have their little costumes and they, they live together and they're trying to kind of act out this little world. They're even building like the buildings, right? And so here's Gandalf, uh, or I guess somebody pretending to be Gandalf. Uh, and he's, he's built this door, right? And he's gonna live in a hobbit hole. And this is where they are. This is, this is what he wants to do in his life. And he's not just thought about it, he is doing it. Put that picture back up there. So, so that's, that's this guy, uh, Nicholas Gentile. But as they were interviewing him, here's, here's 
here's what he said about it. But look at this quote. He says, I realize that I have always lived in the Shire. The only thing missing was to become aware of it and build a village. I wanted people to enter my mind, my fantasy. Many make fun of us. Something that I'm trying to escape from reality, far from it. I am living my dream, my adventure. By purchasing that piece of land, I have removed it from a reality that I don't like and am shaping it the way I want. Did you catch that? You see, you look at him, you think he's crazy, and then you realize that's every American that's alive today. Because that's what we want to do, right? We want to make reality bend to our will. We want to make reality the way we want to make it. And for this guy, that means being a hobbit, right? Now, if you're thinking this is just a one-off, it's not. This happens a lot. Did you know that people have Lord of the Rings weddings? Look at this. This happens everywhere. Google it. I dare you. There are lots of people. They do this kind of thing. They have Lord of the Rings weddings. There's whole websites to help you do this. There are Jedi weddings. There are Harry Potter weddings. There are all kinds of stuff. Every year in major cities, they have Comic-Cons where people dress up like this. Dragon Con was last weekend. This is Magic Con right here in Birmingham. I'm fairly certain I saw at least two of these people at the Galleria not a month ago. And look, if you're looking at all these people and you're rolling your eyes and going, my, seriously, who are these people? How weird could they be? Why would anybody just change themselves and wear all kinds of weird colors and say weird things and do stuff and and make that much noise and, and spend so much of your life on things that ultimately are not real and don't matter because we would never do anything like that, ever. We would never, that could never happen to anyone here because I mean weird people do that right but not us could we if that's either of you I apologize um, <laughs> I don't even know what's going on um, okay please take that down alright so <laughs> look we do this we want to make the world the way we want it. There's this gravitational thing, this sinful thing in us that says, no, I want things the way I want it and we'll do whatever we can to do it. Now look, there's nothing wrong with Lord of the Rings. I'm actually a fan. I do not own any costumes, rest assured. I'm also a college football fan. I watched multiple games yesterday. There's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. The problem comes in is when you and I take those things and we make them the center of everything. That my concerns and what I like and what I want to do become the center of everything. And you can do it with any other thing. It might not be entertainment. It might not be sports. It might be office politics, family drama, neighborhood politics, just politics. I mean, you could take anything and say... No, this is the most important thing and I want the entire universe to revolve around me and what I think and what I want and what I do and this is the only thing that I can see and there's nothing outside of it. Okay, this is the natural bent of every human soul and if we're not attentive to that, if we're not aware of that, if we're not confronting that, we will drift into this place. The Lord's prayer recenters us. It gives us this, this Copernican shift that we need daily that begins to recognize that we aren't the center of the universe, but he is. He is rightfully the center of everything. He is perfectly good and wise. He is the rightful king. He does lead a kingdom. His kingdom is more important. And so 
I need to focus on him and not on us. So so what happens if even before we head into our prayers, we, we begin to say this, before I ask anything of the Lord in prayer, what if I just stop and recognize not only are you my father, you're my father in heaven. Wait a minute. Am I living in the grand reality or just my own? Hallowed be your name. My name is not hallowed. My stuff is not hallowed. God, you are holy and different. You are more important. God, your kingdom needs to come. God, my kingdom is feeble and will not last. God, your kingdom needs to come. God, your will needs to be done. Before I say a word about my will and my request and my desires, God, your will needs to be done. What happens when that becomes our prayer? We are daily reminded of the true reality of things. The Lord's prayer recenters us. This is why we need this prayer or a prayer like it daily. And then thirdly, the Lord's prayer humbles and heals us. The Lord's prayer humbles and heals us. Right there in the middle, it says, and forgive us our debts in verse 12. Which, that's always weird when you say it out loud because nobody knows which word to say because it's either debts or sins or trespasses. You ever had that? We were all saying the Lord's Prayer out loud and forgive us our blah, 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 right? Because like nobody knows which word to use. And so that's why somebody said, we're going to read the Lord's Prayer and we will use trespasses, right? And then so you like, you say which word you're going to use so you can all say the kind of the same thing. But we're so busy trying to say the right word, we forget what it means and it means sins, and here in the Lord's Prayer, we're basically just saying to God, God, forgive, forgive us of our sins. Forgive me of my sins. Remember, this is a prayer for Christians. This is not a prayer to get saved. This is not a prayer to, a prayer to stay saved. This is a prayer of a believer acknowledging, God, I am in you. I am yours. And yet I am still broken. God, there's still things in me that are not okay. God, I need you to move in and through me. And and God, I need to admit, I did this. I I didn't handle that well. I said that. I didn't do that. I should have done that. God, God, I'm going to confess our sins to you. And let's be honest, that's embarrassing. Even if we, we know we're still saved, it's embarrassing to have to admit our sins to the Lord, which is why we just don't. It's just easier not to. And if we're not willing to admit our sins, we probably don't want to talk to our father. So we just go back to moving the levers. Hey, I I prayed. I did my quiet time. I checked the box. I said the right thing. I I showed up this, but I I did this over here and I've done a few good things. And and we're just, we're, we're moving the levers, hoping it'll do something. And it never really does. And we find ourselves disappointed. But what if we turned back and really meant this before I ever asked for anything and I said, God, God, I'm, I'm still sinful and I need your help. I'm still broken and I need your help. And if that feels hard to you, go back to the very first words, he's your father. Remember, we're not simply coming to a power. We're not simply coming to an authority. You're coming to your father who loves you, who created you, who made you in his very image, who chases after us. Think of who's giving us this prayer. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus who's not simply coming to the Pharisees or the ones who finally got it right, but to broken people like us. Jesus who will die for our sins and not say, hey, listen, if you can do the same, then you can come. He says, no, you can't do it, which is why I'm gonna do it for you. I will die on the cross for all of your sins, not just some of them and in me through my grace when I love you even when you don't deserve it you can have perfect confidence that in me you have an eternal security that cannot be taken away from you 
When we live in that grace, it is like an anesthetic so that God can do spiritual surgery in our souls. It's still painful, but we don't feel it. Why? Because the grace of God has already assured me I am his, I am loved, I will never be cast out. Therefore, God, I can confess my sins to you. I need help with this. God, can you work on this? Can you help me with this? God, we forgive us our sins. And we're going to forgive those who sin against us because I'm no better than them and they're no better than me. And Lord, we all need your help. What would happen if before we came to the Lord with our requests, we came asking for healing spiritually and saying, God, I confess my sins to you and see how that does not change the very things that we ask for. And so as we continue to march through this whole series and this whole season of our life, I wonder if we can use the Lord's Prayer as that base, that jumping off point. Not simply to say words, but, but to say, Lord, I want to pray a prayer like this. God, you're my Father, and you're greater than I am. And God, I, I miss that. I, I get distracted from that. And God, I, I want your will to be done. Would you open my eyes to your kingdom, God? Would you cleanse me of my sin? Then... Will you provide for my daily needs? Would you protect me from the spiritual onslaught around me, Father? We need you. And so do this one. Bow your heads and close your eyes uh, where you're at. That's how we're going to close today, simply by giving us an opportunity to pray that. We're going to sing a hymn of worship. You're going to have an opportunity, even just through song, to say that out loud. I say, God, I, I need you. And remember, the words themselves don't really do anything. A song doesn't do anything. A prayer by itself, just saying it out loud, doesn't do anything. But when we, we choose to draw near to God, you are promised that he draws near to you. And he draws near as a father who loves you. So no matter how far you've drifted, no matter where you've been or how you failed or how tired you are, the Lord offers this. And he says, will you draw near to me? I'll draw near to you. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And draw near to him that you might find healing and rest, forgiveness, joy in the presence of our Father. So, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for that. That though we do not deserve it, you are continually seeking after us. You are continually loving us, chasing us, helping us. Father, forgive us where we have tried to make this about us and revolved it around us. And instead, Father, can you open up our eyes to the grandeur and glory of who you are and the majesty of your love for us they might truly draw near to you. Help us, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray.